Hello and welcome to the PLUS Careers podcast that goes with a career interview of issue 48 of PLUS. What do satellites, carbon emissions and the London 2012 Olympics have in common? Well, there's no prizes for guessing the right answer. It's mathematics, of course. And for this podcast, we spoke to a man who's been working on all of these and more, introducing Chuck Gill. My, uh, my name is Chuck Gill, and I'm a system engineer for the Lockheed Martin Corporation UK. And what does the company do? The company does a lot of things. My particular company is dealing with uh, system integration and the integration of various data sources to help customers solve complex problems. So what kind of problems would they be? Give us some examples. Um, well, ones I'm working in the UK are with the uh, Department for Transport, trying to find better ways to take various sources of transport information, mash them together, and um, help a, a traveler get from one point to the other a little more effectively. Um, there may be some applications for the Olympics, don't know yet, but we're hoping to go that way. Uh, definitely some work in trying to reduce carbon emissions. So how do you take all these various disparate sources of data, bring them together, and get an answer that helps the customer? So would this involve, for example, systems where you can have um, text messages sent to your mobile phone telling absolutely. you where the bus is going? A absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that technology already exists now, but, but how do you uh, customize it for a particular transport problem? You can do it on the trains now, you can do it on the bus now, but how do you do it if you're um, mixing your car with a train, with an airplane, with a bus, that kind of thing? Okay, and how, how does that involve uh, CO2 emissions? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things about mathematics is um, you need to have uh, a good baseline on your data. You have to understand what the difference is in the action you've taken. And um, one of the things we'd like to do for our customers is establish a baseline, then determine how they're traveling by car, they're traveling by train, they're traveling by bus, um, uh, changes the baseline. Have they uh, actually increased their carbon emissions through their action or have they decreased it? But you can't do that if you don't know what the uh, st state of carbon emissions were at time zero. Let's uh, go into your personal history. Okay. What did you do at university? Uh, I studied physics. I had a very, I had a life-changing day in 1961 when I saw Alan Shepard go up. You know, my mom was, made me late for school. I was upset my mom made me late for school. But she made me sit there and watch Alan Shepard launch. And ever since then, I had the bug about space, rockets, things like that. And it seemed like the best way to become an astronaut was to, to study physics. And uh, I didn't make it, but two of my classmates in university are flying space shuttle right now. Really? Yes. Did you um, did you go in for it though? I mean, did you try to enter the training? No, my eyes went bad, so they were they were pilots, oh. and I was a navigator. But you use math a lot when you're a navigator too. So yes. you 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 realized it wasn't going to happen with the astro astronaut. But mm -hmm. what did you do next? Uh, I actually got into uh, satellite programs. Um, I I really can't talk about what they were. They were for the uh, U.S. government. But um, the fact that we did operate satellites in various orbits uh, made uh, Kepler's laws, analytic geometry, extremely important. So. so tell us a bit about this. What are Kepler's laws? Uh, Ke Kepler's got three laws, and oh my God, I'm talking to university students, and they're going to see if this old guy remembers them all. But um, the first law is that uh, any body in orbit travels in an ellipse, and the body it is orbiting, in most cases the Earth, is one foci of the ellipse. I think the second law is, and this is where the students are going to get me, either the period is proportional to the uh, the uh, orbit um, semi-major axis squared or vice versa. I'm sorry, I can't remember that. But the third one, and this is the one that, by the way, is most important when you're dealing with uh, satellites, is that a, uh, a line from the uh, focus to the satellite sweeps out equal areas in equal time. And that becomes very critical in satellite orbits. 
by the way, we're doing this interview on, uh, what is it, June 20th? Yeah. I can tell you that every satellite flyer in the world today is having a really bad day. Oh. Because I, I don't care if it's the guy who does Sky, I don't it's a, you know, the guy who does the telephone, or the guy who does whatever with the satellite, he's having a really bad day. Why be, is that? Because today is the summer solstice. It's true. I forgot. And yes. the summer solstice, the winter solstice, and the equinoxes ah. are always your bad days. And the reason that relates to differential equations is one of the hardest things to do on a satellite is it's sitting out there and it's either getting baked by the sun or it's freezing. So the way you do the uh, measurements of how much the sun is baking the satellite or how much the sun is uh, freezing the satellite is through something called finite difference modeling, where you do the difference of the heat in the first micron of the satellite and then take the derivative of that heat flow to the derivative of the second micron to the third micron to the fourth micron as the, as the heat flows through. And you try to figure out if this very, very sensitive component, radio receiver, battery, gyroscope, you know, fuel cell is going to freeze or bake. And so you just spend hundreds and hundreds of hours running those calculations. And sure enough, you get it up there and something was wrong. Your initial condition on the solar radiation was wrong. Your initial condition on how the metal was made that was propagating the heat was wrong. And so what happens on the solstice? That's when you have your extremes. So the satellite's either having extreme heat or extreme cold right now. Right. So if you know somebody flies a satellite, ask them if you had a bad day, you probably did. Um, I, I, well, I was in the Air, American Air Force, and so I went between flying jobs and satellite jobs. And you use maths a lot in flying as well. What did you do? What kind of maths were you using when you were flying? Well, were, you, were you a pilot? I, I was a navigator. A navigator. And, um, you know, before we had GPS, and even before we had inertial navigation systems, you used a sextant to uh, navigate. And so you're um, 6,000 miles from Los Angeles over the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and you're in front of a thunderstorm. And the only way you can figure out how to go off course, avoid this thunderstorm, and get back to the little island in the Pacific where your landing is by celestial navigation. And that's just spherical trigonometry. You find one star, you find another star, you measure the angle of that star over the horizon, you um, know where the celestial uh, north pole is, you know where the celestial uh, zero longitude is, you measure those angles, and you do the spherical trig, and you know where you are on the surface of the Earth. So you, as a navigator, you sit in the plane, make all these observations, presumably put them into a computer? Oh, no, we did it by, we, we did it by hand. You did it by hand. We so you sat there with your pen and paper and worked out the actual trick to figure out where you were. Well, I mean, you, you, had, you had these tables, that, mm. you know, you know, mm. uh, you know yeah. trigonometry tables. But basically, that's, that's, yeah, that's what it was. Well, that's fascinating. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah it was painful, too. Yeah. And it, and in fact, it would take, you would take a two-minute observation of each star, mm. and that would take six minutes. And if you're in an airplane moving 600 miles an hour, do the math of how far you're moving in the time. So when you finally figure the calculations, you, you knew where you were 10 minutes ago, mm. which may or may not have been a good thing. So you just had to keep repeating the process during a 10-hour uh, flight across the Pacific. Wow. So how do they do it these days? Does it still uh, work like that? Oh, no. uh, well, I mean, you have um, a GPS and you have inertial nav systems, but, you know, what if the inertial nav system fails? What if the GPS fails? Or, mm. you know, how do you, you know, how do you do it? So they still practice that. Mm. So it's still a substantial part of people's training that they it are. It's a part of training, but they, they rely more on the automated systems now. Okay. So um, that was your, your pilot career. And what, what came next? Okay. Well, then, I was, then I was doing satellite acquisitions and then... Uh, um, I did some um, stuff in the American Intel world and where I used masks quite a bit. Mm. And then I retired and started working for Lockheed Martin. Mm -hmm. And you pr presumably can't tell us what you did for the intelligence. I, I, what, what I can tell you is, um, y you know, it's, it, it's a problem of statistics. Is How do you know your data is good? How do you know your data is not good? How do you know if, um, 
you've got the right kind of data. And, and so things like probability statistics are, are very important. Can you assign a probability of fact to whatever it is you're doing? Can you assign a, a probability of, um, of, of your uncertainty? I mean, are, are you 100% sure? In the intelligence world, that's never. But are you 50% sure? How do you, how do you quantify that? So that sometimes you can do it, sometimes you can't. And then since you have um, various uncertainties associated with the, each possible action, it gets, it gets very complex. You then retired mm -hmm. and went, went on into industry. Tell us in a little bit more detail what your job now involves. Okay, well, like I said, we're, we're trying to do the same principles of, of, of data quality, uh, data integration to, to, solve, to solve problems. And like, we, you know, we talked about the carbon problem. Um, here's what's so interesting about the carbon problem. Um, somebody gets on the train and assumes that their carbon emissions are lower because they're taking the train versus their car. But what if it's a 12-car train and you're the only person on the train and you think about the amount of electricity that it's taking to move that 12-car train and you're wondering about the source of that electricity. What if it's a coal-fired plant in the north? What, what, what is your carbon footprint then? And then you say, well, look at the steel in the train and the, and the steel to make the rails and the steel to maintain the, the tracks. You know, how much carbon was it emitted in that. But then if the train's full and it's got 1,200 people on it because everybody's standing up and nobody can get a seat, mm -hmm. then the individual carbon footprint is probably very low. How, how do you solve that problem? Those are the things we're trying to study and come up with answers for. Let people make the right decision with the right data. That's the kind of thing we're trying to do. So does this eventually aim at some somewhere where I can go into my computer and say, right, I want to fly back home to Germany tomorrow, mm -hmm. taking the tube, then the train, then the plane, then the train, and then the car, how much is that in terms of yeah, carbon we, we, footprint. We already did a preliminary demonstrator on that where you could do exactly that. The, the, the demonstrator we had is a, a traveler was coming from Stansted to um, Victoria. And um, the traveler could do, uh, plan his or her journey three ways. Uh, they could plan the fastest journey, assuming that was a businessman that absolutely had to get from Stansted to a three o'clock appointment in Victoria. Um, it could have been a tourist who said, I don't have that much money. I just want to get to Victoria the cheapest. I don't care how long it takes. And then you had the environmentally conscious person. And all three did give different answers. Right. So what was the environmentally friendly option? Well, we, it, it was the train. But again, you know, we started questioning our data because, well, what if you did it at uh, uh, Tuesday afternoon at um, 2 p.m. when nobody's really going into London? Were you that environmentally friendly or not? But if you did it on uh, Monday morning when everybody's coming in for business meetings, you were. So we, we looked at the data, but we think we gave a good uh, critical assessment of the data to see if we you know, had it right or not. Mm -hmm. And in terms of mathematics, that obviously involves statistics and Absolutely. data mining yep. techniques. What else? Oh, chemistry. You, you know, I mean, determine the carbon content of the, uh, of the power generation. Determine the carbon content of the train construction. Determine the carbon content of a diesel-powered taxi versus a petrol-powered uh, Ford Focus. Um, determine the carbon content of a uh, diesel-powered bus. Um, what's the loading of the bus? It, it, it's, you know, you can do math forever on this problem. <laughs> it's a hell of a lot of information <laughs> you is, have to it get. Is, absolutely. I mean, how do you even get the data? Well, we're, we're um, working with a process uh, called the semantic web and another process called uh, free field data form and web scraping where you just go out there and just suck in from the internet everything you can you can find and see if something matches your um, your goal. The neat thing about the semantic web, uh, which is something that's been pioneered at Southampton University, is if, if the data is tagged or um, rent, uh, written in a certain kind of language that makes sense, is, is this a noun, is this a verb, is this an adjective, does it... Um, you know, tell me about the uh, performance of Ford Focus or the size of Ford Focus or that it's a Ford 
forward focus. That, that allows you to pull the data out of the web more effectively. So it's an automated system to pull information out of the right, web the by data. basically trying to understand the language. Um, it, it was um, pioneered by Tim Berners-Lee, who was actually the you know the the founder of the modern of the modern web. And uh, but our partners in Southampton are the people working on it. Oh, that sounds fascinating it, too. It has really. been very. I've learned a lot. So you also mentioned that your work on the transport systems will be doing something for the Olympics. Precisely what? Um, well, I, I don't really want to talk about what their requirements are because you know they're you know they, they've they've told us. Um, you know mm. what they're they're after, but if you just think about it, you you have this daily base. You know, talk about baselines. You have this daily baseline of people traveling in London, and then you're going to have these fluxes during the games. How are you going to, you know, you know, do that? So let's do the predictive modeling. How many people need to go in? And, you know, things like that. So um, you did physics at university. Mm -hmm. Then did that prepare you well, or did you, do you later on say, well, I wish I'd done maths because I would have. Well, been... no. I mean, there's, I mean, I studied. Physics, because physics is math. I mean, mm. physics is just the application of math. Um, um, I, I turned into an engineer later on in my career, but but when I was a physicist, we used to make fun of the engineers because the engineers would not take the math to the extreme end. You know, a physicist has got to make everything he uh, thinks or everything he believes work out in a mathematical equation. You know, an engineer can just say, "Yeah, I'm I'm done. The the the, the, the equation works. I'm, 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 I'm I don't care how it works. It just works and move forward." So, that that. Um, um, inner division between physicists and engineer gets me at times, you know. And, and when you're in business, you got to be an engineer because you only got so much time, you only got so much money to solve a problem. So you got to take the engineering approach. But like the um, the, the the carbon on the train, I, I mean, you know, you could study this thing for a thousand years and, and probably not come up with the right answer. So you just, what's the optimal guess, you know, on you know carbon and train emissions? And presumably you quantify in uncertainty, as you said before. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the best thing to do is come up with the best uncertainty. Uh, I had a very, very good professor when I was in uh, graduate school. My, my graduate degree was in nuclear physics. And he just used to beat us incessantly about uncertainties. You know, you put an answer down, and he goes, I don't care if you got the answer right. Your uncertainty is wrong. Zero credit. And then, you know, of course we hated him. But then when I started actually, you know, back in the Intel world especially, or in the... Um, satellite design world, those uncertainties are what saved your life or saved your program or saved your, you know, made sure your data was good because um, the uncertainty was the real value um, to the decision maker if that information was of any value to him or not. You know, if you said um, the thing you're lo looking for is three feet away, plus or minus 100 feet, that's useless information. But if you could say the thing you're looking for is three feet away, plus or minus a micron, that's probably pretty good. So the uncertainty is extremely important. Now, um, you said earlier that um, you do actually have problem recruiting people who are sufficiently mathematically skilled. It it, it, it's not, uh, if, and I guess this totally befuddles me because, um, you know, I've, I, I've used math in just about everything I've done in the past 30, 32 years since I left university. And you, you go out and you, uh, you know, you, you go to universities and you see some students that are very, very much in love with mathematics, but the majority... They're not. They they want to go to business, but you can't do business without mathematics. They want to go into sales, but you can't do sales without mathematics. They want to go into um, um, maybe you know green initiatives. And we've talked for the past you know twenty thirty minutes here about why you need mathematics for green green initiatives. So yeah, I just hope things like this encourage people to study it. You know, um, I, I I think I think anybody who's who's had a career like I have really needs to think about going into education later on and and, and, and taking these um, life lessons because the best teachers I had were not the ones who said this is what the book says we're going to do today. Um, I'll give you a perfect example. I went to the um, the Air Force Academy right after the, the Vietnam War, and um, 
and after after the moon landings. And the guy who really got me to understand the equations of lift, drag, and um, for um, aircraft was a guy who had actually been flying a, a, a fighter plane over North Vietnam during the worst part of the war. And he said, look, you may think this is crap, but let me tell you, if you don't understand um, the effect that uh, indicated airspeed has on your lift equation or your drag equation, when a MiG-21 is trying to come up behind you and you're running in your head, do I have the lift and drag to outrun this guy or I'm going to die? Um, you learn it's important. Or if you meet David Scott, who walked on the moon in 1971, and he's talking about, okay, I've got this much more oxygen in my suit, and the lunar module's as far away, and if I don't get in the lunar vehicle goes 10 miles an hour, I'm not going to get back in time. That kind of you know teaches you it's important so you know if, if a teacher can give you real uh lessons like that that are exciting you know like i i think that makes math a little bit more exciting so i was lucky and maybe hopefully i can you know do that someday and that's it for this issue's careers podcast to find out more read the plus career interview on plus.maths.org slash issue 48 slash interview my name is Marianne Freiberger. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.